Today's New Testament lesson is from the book of Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. He was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy, na be thy name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us, and do not bring us to the time of trial. And he said, and he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked, and the children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, even though, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask and you will be given. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among, among you, if, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. God. Well, many thanks to Spencer Pitts. I have a new hero, a rising fifth grader named Spencer Pitts. And thank you, Spencer, for reading our lesson. You're in our prayers along with many others uh, who are in the process of returning to school. Uh, thanks to Adam and Casey. Casey, thank you for your prayer in leading us and to our men's chorus and to uh, our youth ensemble who shared with us by way of a pre-recording that beautiful, beautiful rendition of the Lord's Prayer. Well, today is a very special day because we are beginning a year-long focus today on the theme of following Jesus or walking with Jesus. So for the next 47 weeks, together as a fellowship, we're going to do a deep dive into the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as together we seek to become more intentional in our discipleship. And many thanks to Allison Gossett and the leadership team in our discipleship ministry for the wonderful work that they have done on creating this path that we're so excited about. Uh, during this 47-week period, Walking with Jesus, we're going to divide the year into six sessions or six segments of sermons beginning with the prayer life of Jesus this morning. And if you follow the symbols just above the slide, Walking with Jesus, you can see that each of these segments have a particular symbol. The prayer life of Jesus first, and then we'll move to the power of Jesus and then during Advent, coming up later, the prophecy of Jesus, in January and February of 2021, we'll think about the preaching of Jesus, and then in Lent of 2021, the passion of Jesus, 
And after Easter, we will finish with the people of Jesus, God's call on us as the people of Jesus. Now, if, if you saw the State of the Church video from Friday that we shared with you, you know that next Sunday, August 16th, we're going to begin limited in-person worship at 8.30 and 11 next Sunday. But whether you are here in person or in live streaming, we want you to join us in what I think is a very critical journey, particularly at this part in our history as a community and as a nation, as we think about what it means to walk with Jesus. Now, I want to begin this morning with the first section of this particular theme. We're going to be talking about for just a few minutes the prayer life of Jesus. And whenever I think about the prayer life of Jesus, I am automatically drawn to the gospel of Luke, where Luke, more than any of the other gospels, the constant theme is Jesus at prayer. It's the same way in his sequel, the book of Acts. What you see in Luke's gospel is that the big events, the key events in the life of Jesus are always punctuated by prayer. For example, at the time of his baptism, what was he doing? He was praying. On the night before he chose the 12 disciples to be his apostles, what was he doing? He was praying. All night long he prayed. At the time of Peter's confession, it was precipitated by a time of prayer. On the Mount of Transfiguration, it's the same. On the night before he died, Maundy Thursday at Gethsemane, what was Jesus doing? He was on his knees praying. And even on the cross on Good Friday, while he was dying, he was still interceding for those who nailed him to the cross. Jesus was praying. There's a recurring phrase in Luke's account that you see for the first time, I think, in Luke 5, verse 16, where it is written, and Jesus often withdrew to lonely places where he prayed. In other words, it was a part of the rhythm and cadence of his life and work. And, and I suppose that the disciples saw this and they perceived a correlation between his prayer life and the power of his ministry. In fact, it was Jesus' own practice of prayer that actually prompted the question of the disciples. You see this in Luke 11, verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, would you teach us to pray as John taught his disciples? Now, we know that at least two of the followers of Jesus had been with John the Baptist prior to Jesus. And we also know that it was customary for rabbis or teachers in the first century to teach a specific prayer to their students that would distinguish them from others. Now, if, if you read the Gospel of Luke, as far as we can tell, this is the only thing that the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them. Uh, they, they never said, Lord, would you teach us to preach? Or, Lord, would you teach us to communicate, teach us to heal, teach us to cleanse, teach us to exercise demons? They didn't ask that. They asked, Lord, would you teach us to pray? There's a wonderful book on prayer by Mark Batterson 
Mark is a pastor in Washington, D.C. He's written this book called The Circle Maker. He's also written a sequel to it about drawing circles of prayer around your students or your children. In this particular book, Mark makes a statement that resonates with me. He says there is one thing that a spiritual leader can never delegate. Now, I would think that might be your witness or your influence or your integrity, but not so according to Mark Patterson. The one thing that a spiritual leader cannot delegate is prayer. Says Patterson, prayer is the difference between you fighting for God and God fighting for you. There are some things that a Christian cannot subcontract. You cannot outsource prayer. Case in point, Acts chapter 6. You remember after Pentecost when the church was growing like gangbusters in number and in spirit. And in fact, it was outgrowing the apostles' capacity to manage Part of the problem that arose in this infant movement was a conflict that almost split the church. There were some who were charging that the Jewish widows among them were actually getting preferential treatment over the Greek widows in the daily distribution of food. Now, of course, the greater issue was that the church badly needed to expand its leadership base. The apostles, just 11 people, were trying to do all of it themselves, and it was too much. And so they called a little conference. That's how we know they were Methodists. They called a little conference together, and the disciples said to the people, we need help. It is not right that we should neglect the teaching of the Word in order to wait on tables. And so here's what happened. Somebody made a motion, the church seconded it, and elected seven people of good reputation, of good standing, and they delegated them to take over the feeding program. Here's the catch. So that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. There are some things that you cannot outsource. Oz Guinness was right when he said, prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. And so the disciples of Jesus said, Master, would you teach us to pray? The question itself seems to imply to me that prayer is a learned behavior. It's not just an instinct, although it is. It's not just a release of emotion and feeling, although it is. Prayer is a discipline that can and must be taught and learned. And my Lord, how we need it in these moments. Now, usually we begin with children by rote. We teach them a prayer. God is great. God is good. Now I lay me down to sleep. Come, Lord Jesus, our guest to be, and bless these gifts bestowed by thee. We teach prayer. We learn to pray by praying. And the disciples saw it, and they said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And he did. Jesus said to them, when you pray, notice he didn't say if, This is not a luxury item for the disciple. This is standard operation. 
When you pray, it's assumed. Reminds me of how Martin Luther once said, to, to be a Christian without praying is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. So when you pray, Jesus said, say, Father. I noticed Casey did it in our prayer today, certainly in the song that we heard afterward, Our Father. There it is. The word is Abba. It means, literally, it means Daddy. It's a term of affection. It's a term of deep endearment. And what Jesus is saying is when you come to God, when you approach God in prayer, don't, don't do it in some sterile, academic, hypothetical, generic manner. This is very personal. When you pray, say, Dad. <laughs> it's a term of endearment. And then Jesus goes on from the address of prayer to give us a pattern, to give us a model for prayer. And it's very simple. I so wish I could make this more complicated for those of you who like complex religion. But Jesus didn't do that. It's very simple. It has five imperatives in the model. Now, the first two concern the holiness of God and his kingdom. Now, I want to confess to you at this point, and maybe you have the same problem that I do, that often when I pray, I immediately rush to my problems. I immediately rush to the concerns of the world and of the nation, and that's important. But Jesus begins his model prayer with adoration. In fact, he starts by affirming the majesty and glory of the name. When you pray, say, Abba, hallowed is your name. I love that word. In the ancient Greek, hallowed is hagios. It means holy is your name, sacred is your name, set apart, sanctified is your name. And what Jesus is saying is as you address God, savor who he is. Relish who God is. Treasure the name. You turn in the scriptures, there are many names for God. The Rose of Sharon, the Lion of Judah, the Shepherd of our hearts, the Rock of Ages, the Great I Am, the Lily of the Valley, the Bright and Morning Star, the Ancient of Days, the Rock of Ages, the Bread of Heaven, the River of Life. Treasure the name. R.C. Sproul, the great Reformed theologian said it like this, the more sanctified a person is, the more heavily weighted her prayer time is in adoration. I think it was Augustine who said that true whole prayer is nothing more than love, adoration. And after adoration in the model comes intercession where Jesus teaches us to say, thy kingdom come. What that means is that when God's name is sanctified, then God's dominion is established in us. Though I want to give you a little word of warning. If you pray that prayer, when you say thy kingdom come, that also means my kingdom goes. Thy kingdom come intercession. Moreover, this particular part of the prayer is not just about the kingdom in the hereafter. It's about the kingdom in the here and now. The idea is that God's 
kingdom, God's reign, God's sovereignty can actually be experienced in part right here, right now, right where you are. Now, I want to give you a little challenge. The next time that your small group meets or your Sunday school class or, or that you're doing your devotion time and you're doing prayer updates, don't start with the concerns. Start with the celebrations. Start with the praises. Call to mind in your group the situations over the last week where you've actually seen the kingdom of God come near. I'm not saying that the prayer list should not include the needs. Of course it should. But start with the blessings. Start with those scenes in your life where the kingdom has actually come in part right now. Well, after adoration and intercession, finally comes requests. And Jesus teaches us there are three fundamental things that we ought to be praying for. Three things. Number one, daily bread. In other words, the stuff that you need to live, provision, physical sustenance. And not just to pray for yourself, but notice the pronoun. It's not give me, it's give us our daily bread. In other words, make it possible for others through you. The second request is forgiveness. The truth of the matter is just as your stomach is growling now for food, so our soul yearns for mercy and for forgiveness. And isn't it interesting that in the model prayer, Jesus ties divine forgiveness to human mercy. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The last request is for deliverance. Do not bring us, Father, into the time of trial. In other words, protect us in the face of testing and temptation that may threaten our faith. Very simple. Adoration, intercession, request. The acronym is AIR. This is not Air Jordan, this is Air Jesus. And the way to remember it as you form the discipline of prayer, adoration, intercession, request. And Luke shares the specifics of this because he knows that if we can learn to pray like Jesus, we could actually learn to live like Jesus. At the end of the model, Jesus concludes his teaching as any good rabbi would with a couple of illustrations, a couple of stories, examples to encourage our perseverance in prayer and to affirm God's willing response. And I love these stories. The first story he tells is of a needy neighbor. Here's what happens. Late midnight, unexpected company arrives a long-lost cousin, a distant relative, and his friend lets him in. The man's hungry. He hasn't eaten since breakfast, but the cupboard is bare. The, the fridge is empty. The kitchen's closed. And it's a grave situation for a first-century Jew because for a first-century Jew to be inhospitable, even at a midnight hour, would bring shame and reproach on his house and, in fact, the whole village. 
And so this man with unexpected midnight company, what does he do? He runs across the street and bangs on his neighbor's door. And notice how he addresses his neighbor. Friend. Now the truth is in the daylight hours, he barely recognizes his neighbor. But at midnight in a crisis, friend, a friend in need is a friend indeed. And he begins to plead, friend, I need food. Friend, I've got unexpected company. I need three loaves of bread. And on the inside, he hears through snoring children, go away, doors are locked, lights are out. It's a school night, but he goes right on knocking. And now the neighbors are stirring and porch lights are blinking and and screen doors are creaking and dogs are barking. and, And the sleepy neighbor reluctantly gets up and gives the man what he needs, not because he cares, but because he knows if he doesn't, he's going to be humiliated by his neighbors. End of story. Here's Jesus's moral. I tell you, though he won't get up and give him what he needs out of friendship, he'll give him what he needs because of the man's persistence. So what's the point? Do you think that Jesus is comparing God to a reluctant, groggy, begrudging neighbor? Do you think that that Jesus is saying, look, if you just keep on banging on the door until your knuckles are bloody, that God will eventually cave in to your request and give you what you need? Of course not. To understand the illustration, you got to go back to elementary math. Do y'all remember the greater than sign and the lesser than sign? You got to get that out to understand this story. What Jesus is saying is if a groggy friend will give in to a pesky neighbor, how much more will your heavenly father who neither slumbers nor sleeps willingly, gladly, readily respond to the needs of his children In the second story, Jesus moves us from friendship to family. And he said, is there any parent among you who, if your child asked for fish, would give him a snake? Is there any son or daughter among you, if they asked mom for an egg, she would give them a scorpion? Well, of course not. And then Jesus says, if you who are sinful know how to give good gifts to your kids... How much more, greater than, how much more will your Father in heaven, Abba, give the Holy Spirit to those who just ask? Jesus said, you have not because you ask not. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. The heavenly Father is even greater than a loving parent. And prayer enables us to see God's willing response to our need. Now, I'm almost finished, but let me give you an illustration of the illustration. When our children were small, our youngest didn't like to go to bed at night. She was born a PM person and she remains a PM person to this day. 
She would really get especially needy after dark at night when we were in bed. And you'd hear down the hallway, I need a cookie. I need a glass of juice. I need some water. I need a light on. I need to go to the bathroom. And one night, it went on and on and on. And I, I had had it. Daddy, I need this. Daddy, I need that. Daddy, daddy, daddy. And I was done. I didn't get up and go down. I just yelled down the hallway, if I hear you say daddy one more time, daddy, there's going to be trouble. It became deathly silent. And then I heard down the hallway her say, Reverend Chapel, I need me some milk. And so you know what I did? I gave her some milk. <laughs> partly as a reward for her ingenuity, but mostly so I could go to sleep. Now, that child will be 27 next Tuesday, and in two months, I'm going to walk her down an aisle and give her away and then turn around and officiate the wedding, and she'll be there in a slightly, slightly overpriced gown. And I'd do anything for that girl and her mother has done everything for that girl because we love our children but what Jesus is saying is your love for your child our love for our children pales in comparison to how God feels about you greater than <laughs> Richard Foster, in his marvelous book on prayer, says, and I quote, Jesus reminds us that prayer is a little like children coming to their parents. Our children come to us with the craziest request at times, and often we're grieved by the pettiness and selfishness of their request. But we would be all the more grieved if they never came to us at all. We are simply glad that they do come, mixed motives and all. And so it is with God. For the next couple of months, this sanctuary is going to become a classroom and the pulpit a lectern. As we invite our rabbi to teach us to pray, Trusting as those disciples of old did that if we could ever learn to pray like Jesus, then maybe, just maybe, we can learn to live like Jesus and love like Jesus and serve like Jesus to the glory of God. Amen.